Hi, this is the See You Next Tuesday podcast. We have dirty words and shit potholes throughout the entire episode. Our name literally spells cunt. How could you not know what was coming? Thanks for listening. Today, you have jumped on the train. Yeah. So we were getting all set up and then we weren't. And then nothing was recording. And then I fixed it. She did. I did. It was freaking phenomenal. You know. Which, thank you, by the way. I know things. You do know things, yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited because it is our contemplation. It's our contemplation, y'all. Celebrate. Celebrate. It's two. 22 on 2022. Two, 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 two. So we're going to have two main cons, two trophy dads. Then we're going to do it all again for episode two. So we're having two, 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 on two, 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 two. And I got a surprise for you because we're having a contemplation. Okay. Are you ready? I You've been like giggling. You're so excited. Yes. I, I am so excited about this. I got to get up for a second. Oh, shit. Okay, she's getting up. Oh! She's throwing things on the floor. You know, <laughs> my husband warned me about that. She's going to a closet here in the office. Those of you watching on our Patreon are like, what? Oh, my God. You actually did make a cake. <laughs> She baked a cake, y'all. She baked a full-on cake. I'm looking at it. Oh, and there's plates and everything. Holy shit, girl. You went all in. It is a sprinkle cake. Oh, my gosh. There's so many sprinkles. Because it's a sprinkle cake, bitch. That's incredible. What does it say? Contemplation. Contemplation. Oh, my God, you guys. This is freaking incredible. I also dropped my mic. You did. Do you need some help? This is how excited she is. Like, she's like over here dropping her mic, throwing shit around. You know, in my defense, my husband did warn me about this. He did. He did. Yes. He He said, be careful. Was I careful? Mm, No. Was I excited? Yes, you were excited. That's Um, why. I mean, which I get. It's a conumbration. That's why I had you bring the champs. But it's not going to be just champs. Pop it open. Oh. Yep. All live, guys. Coming at you live. None of this is pre-recorded. Oh, yeah. You guys get to celebrate with us. So grab a bottle or glass of your favorite drink, no matter what the hell it is. Alcoholic, non-alcoholic, little gummy, (laughs) pot gummy, whatever you need. Whatever you need. Oh, here we go. Pop. <laughs> and there's a little for you. This contemplation. Contemplation. This is all for you, Cunties. Cunties. That was a great name y'all chose, by the way. Very much like it. A lot. Pour yourself a little. What? Pour what? yourself a little. Oh, gosh. All right. Pour myself some. 
that glitter? Oh my god, it's glitter. Is that edible glitter? It is edible glitter. Oh my god, you guys. Oh, and it's it's pink. Hold on, I need a little bit more. There we go. Well, she's just gonna go there for now. I just got edible glitter all over <laughs> all over everything. I oh shit! I got a situation. Oh no! <laughs> we just spilled edible glitter everywhere. Champs all over the place. So we're gonna take a hot second and be right back at you. All right, we cleaned all right. it all up. It's I got my life together. Um, <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us, y'all. Sorry. Never swirl your glitter in your shampoos. Yeah, it makes it overflow. Mm -hmm. But we actually haven't had our first sip yet, so... Cheers! Cheers! Hmm. Oh. Oh, that's good. I was wondering if you tasted anything with glitter. You know what I mean? No. So you were saying that the glitter and the all the sprinkles were the most expensive part of this whole thing yes how expensive is edible glitter i've always wondered 13 dollars. holy shit balls look how tiny this is it's like a i you know makeup little pot think of like that size y'all that's how wow you want to hear a funny story about the edible glitter always my college children were home for the weekend because it was the youngest is birthday. Mm -hmm. So I got them to come home for a family Thing. situation. Right. And they were like, Mom, why do you need edible glitter? And I said, because I'm going to lick it off your dad later. <laughs> <laughs> and were they just looking at you like, never talk again? Um, so the now 14-year-old just looked at us and went upstairs. The daughter was like, I do not need to know about y'all's sex life, but thank you. I said, just make sure you put in earbuds later. Yeah. <laughs> just be on TikTok around nine o'clock. You'll be fine. And um, worry about it. My eldest son, he wasn't home yet because he was coming home the next day. So when he did come home, I retold him this story and he's like, Mom, that is fucking amazeballs. <laughs> and look at your older son. Pod son is just like, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? You know? Also, hey, side note, everybody, and it's on the episode as well. If you heard screaming in the background of last week's episode, <laughs> we promised no one was actually dying as we were talking about murder. It was just Pod son on the playing video games in the next room. Just heads up. <laughs> Nobody's dead. <laughs> it's like two bedrooms over. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually warned him, hey, me and Jesse are going to be podcasting, so I need you not to yell. And he says, Mom, I don't do that when people are at the house because look, I don't want people to hear me. I hear him yelling while we're podcasting. <laughs> I text him, stop yelling. He continues. I text him, stop yelling. He continues. And I'm like, maybe people can't hear it. Then. Jess is editing, and I get a message that says, I can hear your son yelling oh, the in the way. background. <laughs> but it's funny because, like, I, I know what it is. So for me, as I was, like, giggling, and, and like, as I was texting you, like, this is hilarious because you hear this screaming, and then you're talking about, you know, and then he was a contract killer. And I'm just like, 
We probably should tell people that we didn't actually murder someone on our last episode. Although, hell, that would be go down in history. If he yelled right after I said he was a contract killer, (laughs) that timing right there, he's going places. It's pretty good. It's impressive. He's really going places. If he can time that. I mean, I'm all for it. If that's what he's able to do. I did warn him again this morning. Yes. Don't yell. (laughs) Instead of getting, Mom, I don't do that when people are over. I got, old Troy. Because he knows. He knows he does it when people are over. Yeah, he can't say it because I would have said, bro, you killed the last time we recorded. He's so funny. I freaking love it, though. So, Contemplation, let's get into it. Who, you want to kind of explain what we're doing or we just want to hop in? What do you think? All right. So let me tell y'all what our contemplation is. So it's Tuesday and we're see you next Tuesday and it's 2-22-22. So we're going to bring you two man cons, two trophy dads on two separate episodes all released on the same day. Hell yeah, guys. So it's like twice as much work. Twice as much fun. But twice as much fun. Exactly. Yeah. Agreed. We, we didn't discuss who's going first. Uh, We did. And it's me, correct? I made a flow chart for you so you would understand, <laughs> but it was just for the understanding purposes. It was too much for me to understand the flow chart, so I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but she really did have to break it down for me because... I'm not, I'm not stupid, I promise. It's just, whenever she was like, yeah, we're going to do this on this day. We're going to have two episodes on one day. And I was like, okay. And then I'm like, wait. So wait, how many people do I need to do? And then I just had to take a moment and think through it. And then she had to draw me something. Maybe I am stupid. <laughs> anyway. I mean, it was the whole two thing on Tuesday. and There was a lot of twos. T's and alliterations in there. Yeah. And it just got me confused, girl. Sorry. No, it's okay. So, yeah. So, I'm going to go first with our man cunt. Um, And today's man cunt. And don't hate me. You might think I cheated a little bit, but. Did you watch a Netflix show again? No, I didn't. But I did finish Catching Killer Season 2, which, by the way, everybody, go watch it on Netflix. It's excellent. Uh, No, but. I did a heavy hitter. I, I did a big guy. Okay. I mean, that's kind of what we do. Like, you do those people, and I stay away from those people. That's true. Okay. All right. So, I'm just going to throw some quotes out at you first. So, evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought, for as soon as thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine the premises and principles from which it originates, it is frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil. Hannah Arndt, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Another quote. I look like an ordinary person. Here's a guy. He's not really muscle bound. He's not um, look like a fighter. Just an ordinary John. And that was their downfall. My appearance was different from what I really was. So Marsha Faye Chapman was missing for two weeks when her body was found on August 15, 1982, along with two other women, Opal and Cookie. Marsha's body had been there a week before she was found. I'm sorry. Cookie? 
Mm-hmm. I'm loving that. I know. It's a great name, isn't it? I like, I know an opal. Gorgeous. Right? Unfortunately, Marsha had been strangled and dumped on the side of the Green River, one of the many victims of Gary Leon Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. So there's a lot here. I have 13 pages for once. Normally, you're the one with 24. I know. <laughs> so this is like my, my 13 is your 24. I know. <laughs> so first of all, tell me what you do know about uh, Gary Ridgeway. I mean, not a lot. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, like, did you ever see or hear about him back in the day at all? 87. No, I was like eight. Okay. Yeah. And then also, it's also Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So like, and and being living in Texas, you know, you're not going to get. We didn't get that news here. Right. Exactly. So let's get into it. So, Gary was born on February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, he was a middle child of three boys to Mary Rita and Thomas Newton Ridgeway. Oh, were they Mormon? Please tell me they were Mormon. You know I have a thing <laughs> with the Mormons. Though he was raised there, there's no evidence of him being a Mormon. Oh, I know, God. I'm sorry. I know that you really wanted a, a Mormon, a fundy situation, but not this case. Can we talk for a second about um, my drink from the other day? Which drink? The fallen funding. Oh my god! Whenever you posted that, I was so stoked because honestly, that's the level of alcohol you need just to research those people. I was like, I might be crossing a line, but I've crossed lines every day this week, so we doing this. Cross lines? How? You want to get into it? Nope. <laughs> You're like, actually, I'd rather not have this conversation. Um, so his dad was a bus driver and mom worked at JCPenney's in retail sales. You know what? I, you can tell me to stop interrupting. No, no, no. Please interrupt. I'm, I'm fucking with my microphone over here. So yeah, go ahead. Because back in the day, a bus driver and a JCPenney's sales clerk, they could own their own home. And have three children. And, and have live. three children. Yeah, who knew? And they were living the dream. I was, when I was researching this, I thought the exact same thing. I guarantee you they they own two cars. They own their own home. Their kids had food on the table every night. They did not have to live on welfare, and they were not struggling. Yeah, they were basically like middle class or like even lower I'm middle assuming, class. I'm assuming. I don't know. Just a normal you, Were family. they middle class? I, yeah, from what I can tell, it seemed like he had a pretty normal childhood um, when it comes to that, when it comes to that. Because the relationship with the parents is a different story. And also, keep in mind, he's a middle child. Ooh. That does play into this. Sorry, middle children. I'm an only child, so I'm like a middle child times 20, so it's even worse. And uh, I feel you. I feel you. So his dad would complain about the sex workers on his bus drives, on his bus route when they were kids, in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. And Gary's relationship with his mother, on the other hand, was tumultuous. One time when Gary was in his teens, his mother washed his genitals, which was extremely oh, inappropriate at the time. No, no. Yeah. That wasn't okay even in, in the 80s. Yeah, no. Or it, 70s. So he was born in okay. 49. Even still, this is going on in the 50s and 60s. No, that, that It's not okay. No, no. He, that was never okay. He was in his teens. And no. it was one of those, like, you're dirty, you're not, like, one of those, no. where then it's mm-hmm. shame, and now we're, like, making it weird, like, you're associating, 
you know, genitalia with something bad. No. So, yeah. No. Another time he was beaten mm-hmm. for the smallest thing by using a stick or a belt by his mom and dad. And some believe that he was sexually molested by his mother, but Gary actually denies it. I can tell you he was sexually molested by his mother because she was washing his genitals when he was a teenager. There's a lot of like serial killers that that happens to where they have this weird mother experience where the mom is very aggressive and domineering and does stuff like this consistently. And then they turn into Gary Ridgway or God, Gacy, you know, people like that. I can 100% tell you he was molested by his mother. I I wonder if the reason he's denying it is if he doesn't remember or, or he, suppressed it down. That was normal life in his world. That's so true. he doesn't think that was molestation. That's probably true, but too. But it 100% is. Yep. So his father would also get the brunt of his mother's anger, and she was yelling at everybody in the house all the time. So all of this eventually led him feeling a sexual attraction to his mother and also fantasized about killing her at the exact same time. Although Gary never saw the connection to this later, to his crimes, he wasn't that self-aware of a person in general to even make that connection between, oh, maybe the reason why I'm killing people is because I hate my mother and also like want to have sex with her. Like I want her dead, but I also have this weird Oedipus complex going on. There's a lot of psychological situations going on in Gary's head, for sure. Yeah, and I did not get my psychology degree in the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to not diagnose him. Yeah, fair. Me either. (laughs) The Ridgeway family moved to SeaTac, Washington in 1960 from Salt Lake City when he was 11, and he started attending Chinook Junior High School soon after. He graduated onto Tai High School and was held back two grades and the rest of his classmates because of dyslexia. It was also very well known. Uh, it was also very well known that Gary had a low IQ, only being in the low eighties. That that shocks me because most kids with dyslexia actually have very high IQs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Um, he had dyslexia and then he was also had a lower IQ, but. According to a CNN article, quote, put simply, an IQ test measures your reasoning and problem-solving abilities. IQ is really a measure of how well you do on a test compared with other people your age. So. So IQ tests are bullshit. Yeah, basically. It's basically saying, like, here's the average and you're either under or over it or right on it. That's what it says. So when you hear people say, I have a high IQ, it's like, okay. You know, and it's not saying that they don't, that they aren't smart people or they aren't, don't have that IQ level or whatever. It's just don't, don't put as much weight into it as other psychological testing, like like testing for dyslexia and other, you know, things like that. Yeah. From what I can understand. Um, it's kind of like the. Uh, uh, what's it called? Blood pressure test. You know what I mean? Of the criminal world where it's like, okay, it's good information to have, but it doesn't really mean, doesn't have as much weight as people think sometimes. So your blood pressure is not important? Oh, no, sorry. I'm not talking blood pressure. What am I trying to say? When a cop brings you in, lie detector test. Oh, lie detector test. Yeah. I was like like, picturing in my head. I'm like, what the fuck is the word? (laughs) I'm like, 
they take my blood pressure and they always tell me it's great. I'm like, is that not good? Am I, am I okay? Yes. Listen to your friend who's not a doctor tell you <laughs> everything there is to know. <laughs> you didn't become a doctor in two weeks? I know. I You would have thought all that time off, I could have become a doctor. Oh, my gosh. So get this. His high school football coach described Gary as, quote, a somewhat smallish kid, wispy hair, nondescript. And others said that he had no problem with making friends or dating. So here's the weird. This is the weird part about Gary. First of all, that description, I already got a picture of what that coach looks like in my head immediately. To me, he looks like um, the coach on um, Revenge of the Nerds. Yes. And and also has like those little tight, small nylon shorts, but he's mm-hmm. got a big ass gut that's hanging over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he tells you to do laps. You're like, really, bro? Okay. How about you come do laps? Yeah, you me? do laps. So yeah, exactly right. But he, this is what's interesting. So he had no problem making friends or dating. But to their point, he really is a nondescript, doesn't leave an impression on you kind of person. Yeah. And that's normally what a serial killer is. He just slides just enough in the mainstream to where you're like, ah, oh, it's just Gary, whatever. Or and you his just ignore it. Gary. His name is Gary. I mean, it's not like his name is Denver. Like if his name was Denver, <laughs> you'd be like. You'd remember that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's distinct. You're right. You're right. Yeah, you're saying his name does. He's just basically, he's not a script. Yes. Crazy. So. I uh, put here, however, Gary was such a Jan, like as in Jan Brady. Yeah, because his older brother, Greg, exactly was the favorite child. So Greg was his Marsha in this case. So Greg ran for student office and went to a prestigious college where he majored in physics. Everyone knew that Greg was a successful one, including Gary. And it was not hidden. It was very much like, why could you be like your brother, Gary? That. Yeah. Let's just throw in some more shit into the serial killer soup. Let's just make it worse for this guy. Did he also have a head injury when he was um, a child? Well, we're going we're gonna to get into that. So his learning challenges, lower IQ, and his mother's harshness towards him gave him quite a complex about his own intelligence. I mean, who wouldn't? He even cried in front of his attorney about being, quote, put on a short bus. So this, all of these factors really shaped his future self into what we know him as today. So while he was when he was a teenager, he never got in trouble with the law. Instead, he showed signs of the McDonald triad of sociopathy. Okay, so I did a lot of research about this. So I'm going to quote a shit ton here. Um, And I'm also going to put all the links on our bio and on our website, on our blog. And then I'll also include them on the show notes for this show. So here's the McDonald triad. If you don't know, animal cruelty fire setting, and persistent bedwetting in childhood as predictive factors of future aggression and violent behavior in adults, particularly a tendency towards committing homicide or serial murder. The latter three behaviors became the basis of the McDonald triad, also known as the triad of sociopathy or the homicide triad. So that was according to an A&E article on the subject of the McDonald triad of sociopathy. So I'm going to read a little bit more about the article written by Crystal Ponty because she explains more about the triad being debunked as well. And I thought she did a really good job of explaining it. So again, this is uh, all her words. Just really go read the whole article. It's really good. 
There is limited empirical support for the McDonald triad, which McDonald tried to explain in a follow-up paper refuting his own theory. Of the few most anecdotal independent studies that critically examined McDonald's original work, many lack the science and evidence to definitively support his theory. People keep debunking it because it's one of those things where it makes sense on the outset, but then you put everything together and there are a few missing pieces. Judy Ho, a clinical and forensic psychologist, tells A&E True Crime. Evidence shows that any one of the triad behaviors, when isolating, could be associated with future aggression and serial offenses, including serial murder. But it is rare to find all three behaviors together as predictors. Again, quoting uh, Judy, when you look at individuals who commit crimes, especially serial crimes, you sometimes see these early childhood factors like cruelty to animals and obsession with fire setting, Ho explains. These are actually associated with what we commonly define as a psychopath or psychological psychologist. We call it antisocial personality disorder. The most strongly correlated with future violence based on extensive research is extreme cruelty to animals. Not curious kids pulling legs off spiders, but like senseless and brutal killing, like dismembering family pets. Cruelty to animals, especially at a very young age, like a five or six year old knowing how to decapitate a cat, often shows that there's something beyond environmental for these children, something biological, perhaps like a missing sensitivity chip, says Ho. Wow. Yeah. A missing sensitivity chip. Yep. So the McDonald triad is yes, but. It's like he had a he got a good start, but he didn't really go past it. You know, he just kind of was like, oh, OK, great. These three things. Boom. Done. That means serial killer. But not always is what they're saying. It's like, yes, there, but there's a lot of people who didn't even have one of those. There's some people who had all three. There's some people who only had just the animal cruelty. So basically, cruelty to animals is a good predictor is what they're saying. That's well, the there, most consistent one. There's some people that don't have any of those things. Yeah, it's true. Which makes it even harder because then you're like, when does it happen? Sometimes it's just they flip a switch at some point in their life. They hit their head. They hit their head. So I mean, that's not in there, but. Um, actually, let's see. No, it's not. You're right. I thought it was in there, too. Yeah, it's just fire, bedwetting and animal cruelty. But 100 percent of serial killers have all hit their head. Oh, yeah. Which. That's an even better predictor. <laughs> Contemplation secrets. I may be working on something where we're going to discuss something along those lines. Oh, I'm excited. So Gary did display this animal cruelty feature when he was 13. He killed a cat by trapping it in a freezer. And then more telling, he also tried to kill a classmate. What? Nobody did anything? Eh, no. So Gary, and, and I'm saying classmate loosely here, because this kid was in kindergarten and he was like 13. And nobody did anything? Uh, was it teenage boys being boys? Mm-hmm. Um, no, ma'am. Get this. So Gary, a teenager and a kindergartner, were playing in the woods behind their homes. And Gary asked the kid if he wanted to go build a fort. Like any five or six-year-old, when an older kid starts paying attention to you and wants to play with you, he told Gary, hell yeah, and they went off to play. Yeah. Never should a 13-year-old and a 5-year-old be playing together unless they're siblings. Well, yeah. Or babysitting. But exactly. But then also think of it as, like, you know, as a 5-year-old, you're like, oh, sweet, an older kid thinks I'm cool. Yeah, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, we're the parents. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is the 60s, man. Oh, yeah, we were. I was not alive in the 60s. I said we were. But I was not alive in the 60s. 
Even in the 80s, we were free-range children. Chickens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Free-range so animals. The kids are at home or out playing and the parents are doing whatever. They don't care. As long as you're home before the streetlights come on, you're gold. So Gary took out his pocket knife and stabbed the kid once in the stomach, which punctured his liver. Why did you kill me? The little kid asked, not really understanding what happened because he was five years old as the blood began to pool inside his cowboy boots. This little kid was dressed as a cowboy at the time and probably thought that this was part of the game. You could have not told me that and I would have been extremely <laughs> happy. The stabbing wasn't preceded by a fight. Nothing. Gary just stabbed him. Quote, I always wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone, Gary said as he walked away. And no, I could not find any charges brought against Gary because of this. Well, and he was also a minor, so. It was. And it was in the 60s. And again, it's one of those like, oh, shit, what happened? But also you punctured a kid's liver. Like this isn't like a, oh, I like scratched like skin. This is you punctured someone's liver. He didn't accidentally like slice his arm open. Right. No, you, you, you was going in for the kill. Yeah, he's literally. Gary would later state that he did this to see what it was like for when he killed his mother. Quote, I thought about stabbing her in the chest or in the heart, maybe, um, maybe a cut her face and chest. So he was practicing, in other words. <laughs> After high school, he worked at Kenworth Motor Truck Company, and he married his high school sweetheart, Claudia King, enlisted in the Navy in July 1969, where he was then sent to Vietnam. You want a fun fact? Mm. I used to work for a company that sold those Kenworth trucks. Oh, no shit. Well, he worked at Kenworth to the day he got arrested. The very fucking day. It was, um, yeah. Huh. Small world. Not that one. <laughs> Not that one. So, uh, unlike other killers, like Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, or Gacy, he actually did see combat in Vietnam, uh, and he actually served on a supply ship. Uh, they went to the Philippines for part of the war, and that's when he had his first experience with a sex worker. He liked the experience and started visiting them more and more until he, he contracted gonorrhea. Of course he did. Because he's an idiot, and he didn't wrap it. This really pissed him off, because it's their fault. Yes, it's, it's their not fault. your fault. No, 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 no. you did not put a condom on your own dick. Exactly. <sighs> but he kept going back. And still not using their protection at all. And of course, it was their fault. Of course. Yeah. They were dirty, according to him. Of course. You not the dirty one, sir. No, 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 no. Sir, you dirty. Gary was honorably discharged from the uh, military July 1971. And in August, he started work at Kenworth again, but this time as a truck painter. And he was very skilled at it. Like I said, he worked there until 2001. Which, hey, I mean... You like your company? You know, might as well stick around. <laughs> Nobody knows that you're a fucking Green River killer. Lay low. I mean, if he moved around from job to job, that would be a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if people started dying around him when he's moving. Exactly. Yeah. When he came back home to Seattle, he found that his wife had been cheating on him with another man while he was in Vietnam. Of course she was. Now, from where you I dirty. stand, yeah. Neither of them were faithful in this relationship. I mean, he was over here with hookers while he was gone, and she was fucking his friend or whatever. And, oh, well, they were young, right out of high school. 
we all do dumb shit, <laughs> you know? Ain't so that the truth. Gary decided that he had to divorce her because she had become a, and I'm quoting him, whore while oh. he was serving the country. Oh, she the whore. Yes. Yes. He, she is the hoe for show, oh, apparently. Oh, oh, okay. But she was actually the one who filed for divorce and it was finalized on January 14th, 1972. Gary had no problem meeting his second wife, Marsha Winslow, in 1972, and in December of 73, they were married. She later said that Gary liked to have sex outdoors. He was interested in bondage and wanted to have sex in public or some places where future victims were found. So Gary has a massive sex drive. Massive. Like, his wives said, like, they couldn't even. It was multiple times during the day. I mean, okay. Can we discuss this? Outdoors situation. Mm-hmm. As a woman, yes, there are things that can get inside you that you don't want in there, <laughs> like sand. <laughs> Nobody wants sand in their vagina. I mean, truly, there <laughs> like are literally, that don't need to go in your cooter coo. And those things are outdoors. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess like, it'd be okay if it were like up against something where you're not laying down. You know what I mean? Yes, but but even still, like. Tree bark on your ass, like yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I mean, did he at least bring a blanket? I don't know. I would hope so, but he didn't bring a jimmy. So what makes you think he's gonna bring a blanket? You know what I mean? You know, and they were tied up, so it's, you know they didn't have a whole lot of say in what was going on. I, and that's the other thing is like he is so so meticulous. You'll find I'm gonna go more into it, but he is meticulous about what he does. And how he, and this is why he got away with it for so fucking long. And yet, this motherfucker can't wear a condom. Come on, Jess. I mean, it doesn't feel the same. It just feels the same. Okay. I, I can't, it doesn't feel the same. I can't feel the sensation with one on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Or the, I'm too big. Sure, they bud. Don't, they don't make my size. Sure, You're bud. You're right, sweetie. They don't make super extra small. <laughs> so, Marsha... Uh, also suffered physical abuse, unfortunately, by Gary, with him putting her in a chokehold or walking together in the woods. He would like practice walking around around her without any noise and then scare her by coming up behind her. But not in like the playful, like, gotcha, <laughs> silly, kind of like flirty way, like the I really got you there, didn't I? And she's like, what the fuck? No. What the sir, shit? Sir, no. Who does that? Sir, No. I don't like the playful gotcha way. Don't do that to me. I'll <laughs> kick you in the nuts. I thought you, you play pranks all the time on, on the fam. I'm the prankster. Don't oh, you, you prank don't me. The other way around. The pranks are one thing. Sneaking up on my ass is a completely different story. Well, also, let's just go here. As we all know, why the fuck are you in the woods? Yes. No. The- why? I know it's Seattle. It's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. I get it. But you know, I like a good hype. I, I, during the day. During the day, During the day, people, I may or may not, you know, have like a rape whistle with me or something just in case. But hey, hiking during the day. Agreed. Great. I, I may or may not have something a little bit more um, protecting than a rape whistle with me. Yeah. I'm but you sure need to know that. fuck not gonna be there at night. No, God, no. No, absolutely not. And well, if, if my husband wanted me to go, I'd be like, okay. But I'm like you. I'd be like, we need a blanket. I'm going to need a, a pillow. I'm going to need, you know what I mean? 
I need a whole setup here, bud. I need an air mattress because yeah. I'm over 40. You might want to um, bring like a cane or something I can get up off the ground with because I might get <laughs> stuck down there. Um, I definitely make sure the cell phones are charged just in case I've fallen and can't get up. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. So a yurt. A yurt. Even better. Yeah. So Gary was just all around creepy, in other words. Like, even with his wives, like, he wouldn't show as much, obviously. But that's pretty weird. And yeah. I'm sure, like, when you're married to someone like that, you're just kind of like, okay, well, that's a little weird. But it's not, like, deal breaker weird, you no, know? No, because you married him, so obviously you don't think he's a murderer. Of course not. So then Gary found Christianity. Are you ready? No. So he found Christianity during this marriage and would go to church and cry after sermons and read the Bible out loud at home and at work. Can I drink straight from that bottle? Please, grab a straw. And he kept a strict house based on these beliefs. He even went door to door to talk about God. But he was still going to sex workers the entire time that he was with his second wife as well. Of course he was. And while he was going to church and doing all of these like God things. This dude is over here acting a fool. So through all of this, they had one son on September 5th, 1975. And after some time in 1980, they separated. They were eventually divorced in May 1981. And Marsha took primary custody of the of the son with Gary seeing him on the weekends. I am not naming the son because live your life. God, I hope you have a wonderful life. I hope you change away your from name. all of this. Yeah. I hope he changed his name. I would have. I've been like, fuck all of that. I don't want to be. Because that's your whole life then. I would have been camped out on the court steps with my air mattress waiting for the judge to get there to change my name. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because I'd be like, okay, no. I can't live the rest of my life. Like, are are you Gary Ridgway's son? Like, God dang it. Yes. And I would have gone into the courtroom, put my birth certificate down on the judge's thingy-mabopper. And that's all I would have done. And then he would have been like, okay, what do you want to be known as? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're related to understood. He, I would, totally and then he would have read the birth certificate, seen the father and would have been, okay, you're now Bob Smith. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. God. So as you know, they separated. Um, but, but, but here's the craziest thing that Marsha reported. So, she said that he would be gone at night for long periods of time and would come back wet and dirty and give no explanation to, as to where he was. Ladies, men, anybody, your significant other comes home wet and dirty and you don't find this suspicious? I, seriously, like, and, and no explanation. Like, they just walk in the door. They got leaves like stuck to their back or some shit. And you're like, you good? You everything okay? And they're like, yeah. Um, why are you wet and dirty? Uh, what? you know, gotta go take a shower. I'm sorry. I'm gonna need another gummy. <sighs> so. And a nap. Don't worry. We're almost at the end of my first half. I'm gonna need somebody <laughs> to send me a moon pals. It's P.O. Box. Four seven two. <laughs> so after the divorce in May of 1981, in November that year, he bought a home on 32nd Place in King County, 
which would become a home where dozens of women had their final hours alive. He did have a few renters there in 82, but for the most part, he lived there alone and did whatever he wanted. So unfortunately, it became a killer, a kill pad. As soon as women started showing up dead and then multiple women started to be found, one right after the other, a task force was assembled, the Green River Task Force, to find this guy. If y'all remember back a couple episodes ago, my star mom was Miss Faye Brooks, who was on the the Green River Task Force. Yes. As one of the, I think she was the first black woman to be a detective in King County at the time. By 1983, detectives are, are getting nowhere on the Green River Killer case, and they had assembled a task force, including Faye Brooks. They started with Marie Malvar. This is one of the first disappearances. Um, and she led them to Gary because a man reported that a truck similar to Gary's was the one that Marie was last seen in. They actually did interview Gary, and he admitted to, he called it dating sex workers. Uh-huh. I mean. And he, he did say he did date one of them, and she was one of the missing victims. But they had to let him go because, I mean, that's not enough to go on. I mean, they have a lot of Johns. It's not like. Yeah. I mean. They that s- makes them a killer. They see a lot of men. Right. So, you know, just because you're one of their dates. Right. Doesn't mean you murdered her. But what's hard is like whenever the cops are kind of getting a weird vibe off the guy, there's nothing they can do. Because then you, you, in order to get a warrant, you have to have enough evidence to warrant the warrant. And yeah. it's hard to say, like, I got a bad vibe. I mean, it's not enough. So. I mean, can't you just lie and be like, I saw a knife in his car? Oh, sure. I mean, cops lie all the time. But, I mean, then that's dirty police work. And that's not good either. It sucks. I know. It's Catch-22. So apparently the bachelor life wasn't his style because uh, Gary started attending parents without partners. Oh. <laughs> okay. When I read that, that I was thing. Yeah. You don't remember? You never heard of parents without partners? No. It's a support group for, for exactly that. Like divorce or death or whatever. And it's a, yeah, he would go and meet people. He dated a few women through the program. He even got engaged again, but the woman bounced when she met someone else who was better. Thank God. Good for you, lady. He eventually met Judith Mawson in 85, and they married in June of 88. They lived together for a bit before they were married, and she would later say that Gary would leave early in the morning sometimes. She was thinking it was for overtime, but um, I don't think he was working at his actual job. But okay. Detectives had found more evidence by this time, enough for a warrant, and on April 8th, 1987, they served the warrant at his and Judith's home. They took hundreds of items, including rope, paint samples, plastic tarps, and carpet fibers. They even went through his financial records, but nothing linked him directly to the case. The one bit of evidence they did get was a saliva sample during the warrant, and this will be his undoing. DNA, y'all. That's it always right. leads back to the DNA. Bless those those cops for going, I, we can't do anything with it now, but when we can, we're going to fucking nail this guy. And they did. I mean, I had to, I have to think, you know, all these cases where they're like, we're going to get this um, saliva. We don't know why, but we're going to do it. I think that they had to know 
that this was being researched and it wasn't just a blind, we're going to get this saliva for no reason situation. Uh, No, for sure. No, you're right. Because I I also think 1989 in the UK was the first case tried and convicted with DNA. And so this was 87. Yeah. So So, yeah, there's rumblings for sure. I think there had to be like some sort of cop newsletter that went out by, um, did they have email then? No. Um, Teletype. The fax machine. <laughs> the fax machine. Um, that said, hey, we're working on this new discovery. You might want to start doing this. Right. Like right. a heads up. Hey, heads up. Side note. This little sidebar, as it is on the little side of the newsletter. Ah, I see. Sidebar. <laughs> you might want to do a little cheek swab. We don't know why yet. But we think we might be able to use this here in about 10 years. Exactly. I'm glad they did. Well, his third wife, Judith, had no idea, obviously, that he was the Green River Killer and never even suspected him when the cops rolled up to their home in 87. She didn't watch the news. And so she even didn't even know that the Green River crimes were going on. And it was the biggest fucking news story in the in literally in the area. Tens, tens of of women dozens of women have been found dead all over all over portland and seattle and you're telling me you, you don't know you just were like i just wasn't watching the news yeah what can we all start watching the news i mean i watch my local news while i'm getting ready for work every day right and, and it's not that long and local news is just little snippets here and there yeah but can we all, like, educate ourselves? Right. It just, I mean, and granted, I know the, the news can also be awful. I mean, especially recently, it's been just, ugh, shit. But at least just keep up with current situations to keep yourself safe. That's all. That's all <laughs> and, I'm saying. And, and can we um, also not get our news from Facebook and the ticky talkie? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Married Bliss apparently is all that Gary needed because he killed a lot less whenever he was with Judith. She said later, quote, I feel like I have saved lives by being his wife and making him happy. I'm sorry. Right. Her casserole must have been amazing. Mm -hmm. It it was. And get this. Judith and Gary stayed married and moved around King County for a bit. Then from 89 to 97, they moved to Des Moines, Washington and lastly to Auburn. Washington until 2001 when he was arrested. Judith stayed with him for the rest of his free life. But she did divorce him after he was found to be the Green River Killer. We'll find out on the next episode. And that's where I'm going to leave it. No, she's not. I sure should am. I would kick her ass. No, I'm serious. That's (laughs) that's where I have my my note to, to leave it. So you kind of broke the rule. You only did one man cunt. I told you. I told you I was going to do a big guy. So I split it into two because there's so much. Oh, so you yeah. cheated. It's, it's, it's not a cheat. It's just, you know, a little bit of here, a little bit of there. That's all. She cheated, y'all. <laughs> you see what she did there? I did cheat. Are you mad? You don't get to eat the cake. You just can Damn stare it. at it. Oh, fine. Okay. What's, what's your favorite flavor of cake? We're going to see how mad you're going to get. Uh, red velvet. It's not red velvet. That's my, 
that's my favorite. If I had known that was your favorite, that's what I would have made. That's awesome. I just like cake. So really every cake is my favorite cake. Well, one layer's chocolate, one layer's vanilla. Oh, shit. You made a fucking cake, man. You you kept your promise. Remember on episode, what was it, 10? You were like, I'm going to make a cake. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, when we get to this episode, I'm going to make a cake. And we'd get there and I didn't do it. Yeah. And then we'd get there and I didn't do it. And then I stopped promising. And it's funny because, like, I really thought the cake was more of a metaphor. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to make a cake. I was like, okay. And sitting before me is an actual cake. I so love, the cake is not a lie, everybody. I love to cook and bake. Yes. So, thus the cake. Now, I did cheat because I knew I was going to have to do it on a Friday night after wearing someone is box cake and store-bought frosting. Wow. Wow. So you had me over here thinking you made this whole cake. I did make it. I had to open the box and put it in the bowl <laughs> and add the eggs and the water and the oil. Oh, I got you. Okay, okay. You made it sound like you bought like a, a pre-made cake and then just put the sprinkles no. on it. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. I just didn't make it from scratch. No, that's. Are you about incredible. to tell me a box cake makes this from scratch? No. Okay. No, I know. I know the difference between the box mix and then the the that. Dude, honestly, I fucking love it. I think it's super sick. I'm not really mad at you, but good. You no, know, it's a little bit of cheater. Here I am. I did two separate people. Like she a did. Fool. Like a fool over here. You're not a fool. You're just giving us a little bit of extra something something. So what am I? Do I do my main cut or my trophy? You got to do your trophy now. Right? According to your flow chart. Here, let's whip out the flow chart. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> here it is. See? That's you right there. <laughs> We really did have to do this because it was like, wait, did we over-research? Is that possible? We actually thought we did too much. Which is not a bad thing. I guess we could have just recorded another episode for shits and gigs. Why not? I mean, yeah, I'm no. excited to hear about your trophies, though, because okay. I'm done with Gary. Let me tell you about this trophy, Dad, because I was going to do him a couple of weeks ago. Mm. But then... When I was doing my research, I found out his birthday. He was born February 22nd, 1962. Oh, my God. So you actually found one. He got bumped. Yeah, hell yeah, I did. Because, I mean, the date. Yes. So on today's date in 62, Stephen Robert Irwin was born. Oh, my God. You're doing Steve Irwin? Yeah. Oh, I love Steve. I just saw his daughter the other day on Instagram and I just like, anyway, keep going. Keep, okay, go. So Stephen, Steve, Robert Irwin was born February 22nd, 1962. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Steve. Steve. He was born to Lynn and Bob Irwin and Erber, Erber, <laughs> Upper Fern Tree Gully, Victoria. His father was a plumber and his mom was a nurse. But they were naturalists um, as a hobby. Steve also had two sisters. And in 1970, his parents moved the family to Birwa, Queensland, where his parents um, turned their hobby into the family business and they opened the Birwa Reptile and Fauna Park. 
So Steve grew up loving wildlife, but especially reptiles. I mean, someone has to love reptiles, but it sure the fuck is not me. (laughs) No, 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 no. So he caught his first venomous snake, a common brown, at six years old. No, no, no. God bless. Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope. Um, Steve was in the habit of being late for school because he would convince his mom to pull over so he could rescue a lizard on the side of the road. (laughs) So, like, this was, like, him from... A a baby. Yes, from a a small child. Like, Oh, he just always wanted to help. Steve was Steve always. Yeah. Steve was always Steve. Aw. So, by the time Steve was nine, he was helping his dad catch, um, small problem alligators that were hanging around the boat ramps by jumping on them in the water and wrestling them back into the dinghy. I'm sorry, you were letting your nine-year-old wrestle crocodiles? I guess so. Y'all, what were you doing at nine? Not that. I was bike riding around my neighborhood. I was probably (laughs) still playing with Barbies. Oh, yeah. Easily. Oh, God. Okay. So it's said that Steve had a sixth sense when it came to wildlife, and he just spent his life honing that skill. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like it. So in the 80s, Steve spent months living in the most remote areas of far north Queensland, catching problem crocodiles for the government before they ended up being shot by poachers. Um, so he actually was saving crocodiles. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and he's different than, like, the Tiger King type people oh, where they say that they're going to help people. They're not. Animals. And they're not. And Carol Baskins, no, she's not. No. Mm-mm. Don't even start on that bitch, Carol. Yeah. So he worked with Suey, his dog, and developed crocodile capture and management techniques that are now utilized with crocodilians around the world. Crocodilians. Holy shit. What are crocodilians? Are those people that like research like crocodiles and stuff? Yes. Oh my God. I didn't know that was their name. That's so cool. (laughs) I know. I didn't either. In fact, um, Google Docs did not accept that word. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Google Docs is like, blue, blue, that's not a word. It's like, are you sure, lady? Are you sure this is a word? I kept it because I was like, yes, <laughs> it is what Steve's website said. We are keeping it. By 1980, the Family Wildlife Park, um, Steve was now living there. He was calling it home, but they had renamed it to the Queensland Reptile and Fauna Park. And Steve and his bestie, Wes Mannion, worked unlimited hours caring for the wildlife and maintaining the grounds. Um, And then on October 4th, 1991, Steve took over managing the family park. Um, His parents had retired. It was time for him to take over the reins. October 6th, 1991, two days later, he met Terry Raines, a visiting tourist. Steve and Terry married in Eugene, Oregon on June 4th, 1992 at the Methodist Church where Terry's grandmother used to attend. If that's not fate, 
I don't know what is. So she was just a tourist and he met her. And mm-hmm. I was always wondering how they met. That's so cute. Two days after he took over managing the park. This meant to be, man. The universe just aligned. That was fate. Absolutely. They were meant to be together 165 million percent. I remember watching them as kids, as a kid and just being like, oh, that's so cool. I mean, and granted, we also thought it was kind of weird. Like, oh, look, this crazy crocodile dude. It's like over here tackling crocodiles. Look what he's doing. But it was like you said, it was like all because he actually cared about the animals. And he was like, oh, check out this and learn about this creature that most people don't want to touch. Or even know about because a yeah. lot of those things are from Australia. And right, exactly. They're nowhere else in the world. Exactly. So it's like, oh, come check out this really cool species of lizard that is only here in Australia. Like, it was so cool. I don't know. I, and then seeing him and his wife and then the kids, of course. Yeah. Which was so neat. So the couple actually did not take a honeymoon. They started filming a wildlife documentary with Steve Stainton from the Best Picture Show Company instead. And that show was so successful um, that the croc- that's when the Crocodile Hunter series was born. Oh, so they, they made a documentary first and then the show. Right. Oh. Everyone loved the documentary so much that they... Created the show from it. Dude, that's awesome. And that was actually their honeymoon. Aww. I mean, that's true love. For you to give up a honeymoon so your husband can make a documentary about his wildlife animals that he loves. Easily. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge deal. I mean, and obviously, she had to love the animals, too. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you can't... You're you're in, in there with the animals. This isn't like, oh, hey, that's our pet. You know, monkey over there. It's like, no, you're inside the cage. So I would assume you'd have to at least enjoy, you know, I mean, being around them. Yeah. <laughs> to forego a honeymoon to yeah. do the show, you know, a lot of things. Um, so Steve, he was dedicated to their family's wildlife park. Um, he worked endlessly to improve and expand it. And in 1998, he renamed it. Um the Australian Zoo, and his vision was for it to be the world's best zoo. And his message has always been conservation through education, through exciting education, and this is what you'll find at the Australia Zoo. Um, and so his zoo is not like American zoos, I don't think. You know, like we capture animals, we put them in cages, and Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the one zoo I do know is a conservation zoo is the San Diego Zoo. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I, I don't know about others. I'm sure there are some, of course. But yeah, it's it's a totally different type. It's like this animal is hurt. They actually can't live anymore in the wild. They need a place to be. And then so that's when conservation zoo will like swoop in and take them. Mm-hmm. And then we get to learn about them versus like, oh, let's put this animal in a cage. Look at that. Yeah. So, and he really wanted to educate people. So, you know, his, this is not like when you go to um, the San Antonio Zoo, mm. you know. Yeah. So he also founded the Lynn Irwin Memorial Fund in honor of his mom. And all of the no- donations go directly to the Ironbark Station Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, which manages 
3,450 acres of wildlife sanctuary. And Steve has also purchased a large tract of land throughout Australia, large tracts of land throughout Australia for the sole purpose of preserving them as wildlife habitats. So he's, you know, not just the crocodile hunter. Yeah, this is all stuff that I didn't know about. That's awesome. And this is, and his kids have grown up in this. Mm-hmm. And they're continuing on this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you haven't seen Bindi lately. I know. Catch first, up, because, my God. <laughs> first of all, can we talk about Bindi? She's so cute. I, I'm. Are you going to skip to the end? Because I just think she's so damn cute. You like, know what? She's just precious. I, I don't talk about Bindi in this, but let's talk about Bindi. Please, let's. Baby Bindi. Oh, my God. Not cute. Adult married with a baby Bindi. Super cute. Yeah. She like. She's the ugly dog. She's just so like bubbly and you can just tell she's just a really sweet person. Yes. She has her dad's energy. Yes. And love for animals. Yeah. but, But yeah, she grew. She had to. Ugly duckling and a swan. Oh, for sure. Situation. Yeah. Yeah. We all do. <laughs> if yeah. I could show you some photos. Oh, my God. I just remember when, like, Steve was, um, had baby Bendy in pictures everywhere. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, babies are cute. Yeah. But well, now you see her and you're like, oh, my God, she's so pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And I love her. She is so cute. And when I found out she was pregnant, I was so excited. I know. That was ridiculous. Okay, let's go back to Steve. So Steve also founded the Wildlife Warriors Worldwide. Um, it was it's formerly the Steve Irwin Conservation Foundation, and it protects habitat and wildlife, um, and creates breeding and rescue programs for endangered species, and leads scientific research to aid conservation. He also helped fun, found fun helped find found. He founded. Founded. He founded. Yep. You had it right. We got through, y'all. The International Crocodile. I'm going to go rescue. I think I got autocorrected to resume. (laughs) For no reason. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Steve. So July 2006, Mm. Steve set out on his 10-year business plan for his dream zoo. He could, but he could not have foreseen, or anyone else for that matter, um, that he would be gone two months later. That's so crazy. On September 4th, 2006, Steve was filming in the Australian Great Barrier Reef, and he was doing a segment on a school of stingrays and began snorkeling in a shallow area. Area. Stingrays um, do have a barbed tail and non-life-threatening venom. Mm-hmm. They are normally docile, um, but on this particular day, just this perfect storm happened, and it's really weird. Um, a male stingray inexplicably struck Steve in the chest with its tail, and Steve's heart was pierced, and he died within minutes. Um, to show how rare this is, it's only the third known fatal stingray attack in Australia and the 17th in the entire world. I, I still can't believe it, to be honest. like. All these years later, I'm still like, how in the fuck did that happen? Like, 
Because, yeah, there's there's literally like petting zoos or like, you know, aquariums you can go to for kids and you can like pet stingrays. So it's almost like if you believe that it was fate, he met Terry. Yeah. You is believe this, the is fate. this the fate he was supposed to meet on this day at this time? I mean, because yeah, I guess this is so rare. Yeah. Like, you probably have a better chance of winning the lottery today than you do of this happening. <laughs> Truly. And for it to pierce his heart, too. Because think about anywhere else it could have hit. It could have hit his have, arm. It wouldn't have killed him. No. No. Like, that is literally, like, the perfect storm of shit. It's crazy. I will say, though, of the ways to die, it's pretty fucking badass. How'd you do How'd you go? A fucking stingray pierced my heart, bro. So do you think when he um, got upstairs to the pearly gates, they were like all standing along the streets, giving him a ticker tick parade Hell because yeah. he's the biggest badass in heaven? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Not just for that, but also because of Steve Irwin, because he's, he's a badass. You want to know how badass he was? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So um, in 97, he discovered a new turtle species <gasps> cool. named Irwin's Turtle. I have the scientific name here, but um, I can't say it. That's okay. 2001, he was awarded the Australian Government Sanitary Medal for Service to Global Conservation and Australian Tourism. In 2002, he got the lead role in The Crocodile Hunter um, and established the conservation charity Wildlife Warriors. 2004, he is recognized as Tourism Export of the Year, Australian of the Year nominee. 2006, awarded honorary professorship by the University of Queensland School of Integrity Biology, or Biography. 2007, 135,000 hectare, which is Mm -hmm. 334,000 acres, National Reserve established on Cape York to um, the Sea Irwin Wildlife Reserve. So they gave him his own wildlife reserve. They finally did. After he passed away. Oh, wow. In 2009, he was honored um, with the naming of a new species of land snail, the Craggy Steve Irwin. Oh, the craggy Steve Irwin? Uh-huh. That's really cute. And he was inducted into the Queensland Business Leaders Hall of Fame. In 2015, he was the recipient of the Queensland Greats Award. In 2018, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Wow. And as you guys literally heard us say five minutes ago, Bindi, his daughter, is now married, and her husband, her husband looks like her dad, like a young version of her dad. I thought that was weird, in a good way, like, holy shit, like, again, the universe, like, looks like her father, everything, blonde hair, everything, it was crazy, crazy, but, yeah, no, just seeing her, like, take over the park with her mom, and her husband, and now her daughter. And her brother's involved And her brother, yep. Everybody, so really cool. What a great dude. Thank you for reminding me of him. Remember when Steve was, um, got in trouble because he held Bob while feeding a crocodile? Yes. 
I'm like, if anybody's going to feed a crocodile and hold a baby, it's going to yeah. be Steve. I, w- I would trust him to hold any baby next to a crocodile. Me? No, absolutely not. Don't give me a baby next to a crocodile. Um, don't put me next to a crocodile, please. Right? Don't give me a baby. Oh, I don't know what to do with that. That's amazing. Like, ah, what a good one. Thank you. So are you doing your trophy now, or am I doing my man cunt? You have, now it's your man cunt, see? Man cunt. Well, that wasn't necessarily the order. <laughs> I was just trying to explain things. But okay. If you like Steve Irwin. You're going to really like this. Oh, no. What journey are we going on? Well, let me tell you all about Vernon Wayne Howell, who was born August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas, to Bonnie Clark, an unwed 15-year-old who never knew who his father was. Oh, starting off strong. Do you know who Vernon Wayne Howell was? No, but it's... I have a feeling I'm going to know very soon here. I'd be mad that I didn't remember. Well, you may have never known his name is Vernon Wayne Howell, but we'll get there. Uh-huh. We will get there. Come along this journey. I really thought this was going to be longer, but let me take you on this journey of Vernon. He was raised by his grandparents and attended the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So... Vernon was always interested in the Bible, and during his senior year of high school at Garland High, Vernon dropped out to take a carpentry job. Why do people always drop out of school? I don't know. Various reasons, socioeconomic stuff. I get not going to college. Yeah. Let's just finish high school. Yeah. It's important. Kids, finish high school. It's important, yeah. Trust Even me. McDonald's wants you to have that high yeah, school diploma. It, exactly. And if anything, like, just get that out of the way. And then if yeah. you truly want to just do your art or whatever, cool, man. Just just get that yeah. degree. I mean, do your art. You do you. Hell yeah. Um, just finish high school. That's all I'm advocating for. So during his 20s, um, he lived for a little while in L.A. trying to make it as a rock star. But um, he didn't cut it because let's get real, not a lot of people do. What year was this? 60s? Well, he's born in 59. Okay, okay, keep going. So he returned back to Texas because you, you know how much I love my Texas stories. I just, yes. <laughs> I'm proud of our crazies, y'all. Yeah. And he rejoined the Seventh day Adventist church. But he was kicked out after butting heads with the church leaders. Okay, so what is Seventh-day Adventist Church? Right? Yeah. Let's go into it. Let me tell you. Please. So their day of observance is Saturday because the seventh day of the week in the Christian or Gregorian or Hebrew calendars is Saturday. Right. Okay, so that's not weird. I get that. A lot of calendars start on Sunday and end on Saturday. I'm not weird out, weirded out about that. I mean, everyone goes to church on Sunday. and Go to church whenever you want to go to church. That's not culty vibes, so Saturday doesn't bring culty vibes with no. me. Here's their other distinction with their particular church. The emphasis on the imminent, imminent second coming of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. There's the culty vibe I was waiting on, y'all. But in all fairness, having gone to a Christian church 
every Christian church believes in the imminence of Christ's return to earth. And so therefore, it doesn't matter if we die because we'd rather be in heaven anyway. No matter what church it is. Every Christian church that I've attended has that underlying sentiment. And it's just the degree at which they kind of preach it. So Southern Baptist was very much more like revelation is exactly how everything is exactly going to happen exactly. Lutheran was like, oh, revelations like visions and a guide, essentially. And then you got other people that are like them and then like the Jehovah's Witnesses that are like, at any moment, the world is going to end. Are you prepared? So. I, I love these church journeys that you take me on because I get culty vibes from all of it. Yeah. I mean, the... The more I'm away from church, the more I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And uh, we're just going to caveat this. Believe what you believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, We don't, don't give care a what shit. you believe. No, God, no. Oh, no. Never. No. no. And I still do hold some of my beliefs in Christianity because of, you know, that's what I was raised. And I also believe some of it still because that's what I believe. But there's other parts that I found to be, you know not not good not what i believe jesus would want helping people and you know loving our neighbors and making sure everyone has equal access to everything including healthcare and things like this i feel like jesus would be on about if he were here now but i i just wasn't raised like that and um so yeah i get culty vibes yeah it's it's so good that i i appreciate you not having gone to church as a kid because I can, t- you can ask me questions and I can answer and then I can ask you questions about what's it like to not have to go to churches <laughs> and then we can. It was great, bro. Well, God, no, a whole it, free wasn't, day. it wasn't great. I had to wait for all my fucking friends to get home from church. Ugh. And those ones that were in church all day on Sunday. Yeah. Okay. That's where I drew the line too. I was like, y'all need a life. I man. was like, I just want to play, bro. I just want to exactly. Or take a nap in front of the TV as grandma and grandpa watch football. I mean, like how hard is this? Yeah, I mean, anywho, so, but I think they were, like, real culty about it, and that's where I stopped my research, because I don't want to get, like, emails and shit, because I'm still getting, okay, Chicago Tribune, I had to put in my email address to get all the information I needed on my friend, um, Jason Van Dick, and, um, I need you to stop, I've unsubscribed, (laughs) I get 18 emails a day from you i've hit unsubscribe why am i still getting them so i stopped my seventh day advantage research because i didn't want their emails too so what you're doing essentially is you're boomering out and yelling at the universe to stop to unsubscribe you from something i hit the unsubscribe (laughs) button and it didn't unsubscribe me i know how email works i know i know just I'm telling the Chicago Tribune to leave me the fuck alone. Hey, people out there, fix my problem now. <laughs> I'm just saying. I love it. I did research for you people, and now I can't get them to leave me alone. <laughs> no, I can't not do research. And that's why you don't get more research on the Seventh Day Adventists because I didn't want their emails too. So he joined the Seventh Day Adventist Church. He's going down this this world. Well, now he what? was part of it, it while growing it. up. Right. Now and he's back. And then he returns back to Texas, rejoins the church, 
he gets kicked out because he butted heads with the church leaders. Okay. We're in the early 80s now. Burnham moves to Waco, Texas. And in 1981, he joined the Branch Davidians. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Y'all, let me tell you who the Branch Davidians are. They're a splinter group from the Davidians. I'm going to take you on a big history lesson here. Bear with me. The Branch Davidians are a splinter group of the Davidians. The Davidians were organized in 1955 by Ben Roden after the death of Victor. Hautef, the founder of the Davidians. So the Davidians were a small Seventh-day Adventist reform movement in 1929. Okay. Victor had been a devout Seventh-day Adventist and was a Saturday school teacher, but his teachings began to go into a more, began to go more in depth than the church liked. Especially mm. when he wrote a book about it. Okay. And then that's when the church is like, hey, how about we just not do that? Yes. And so he didn't want to create a new church because he truly did believe in the Adventist teachings. So he just built upon them. And that's when he formed the Davidians. Okay. So in 1935, Victor and 37 of his followers settled two miles from Waco and established the Mount Carmel Center. The quote-unquote community flourished and grew to around 99 people by 1955. Victor was, um, Victor had complete authority and his followers believed that he was the only person who could reveal the biblical secrets about the end of time. Mm -hmm. There it is. That's how you know. As soon as they say, I'm the only one who knows the secrets for insert whatever here. Get out. Get out. Jump ship, bro. Leave. So one of the things Victor taught was that he would not die. I mean. That's awesome. Can he share that secret with the rest of us? That'd be super fucking sick. I mean, why not teach that? Because when you do die, you don't have to deal with the ramifications, right? Exactly. I mean, so. You don't have to pay your debt. Jess, I'm not going to die. Okay. I'm going to hold you that. So when Victor suddenly died of heart failure, the Davidians were shocked and there was instability within the quote unquote church leadership. And so several splinter groups were formed. Okay. So, for a man who said he wouldn't die, he had a backup plan, you know, just in case. Could y'all hear my eyes rolling? Yeah. Because who has a backup plan for when you're not going to die? Yeah, if you're not going to die, you don't need any plan. So, (laughs) Victor appointed his second wife, Florence, to lead the Davidians until the Lord chose another prophet. Oh, Florence was like, yeah, nope. She sold the property near Lake Waco to a residential developer in 1957. The group resettled on a 941-acre farm nine miles east of Waco near Elk, and they called the new compound New Mount Carmel. Oh, wow, that's original. Way to go, Florence. I'm proud of that name. Florence, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. I can't. 
So April 22nd, 1959. Whoa, there's another 22 in there. Yes, I didn't even do that on purpose. Hell yeah, girl. That was fate. <laughs> Florence and the other um, leaders predicted the establishment of God's kingdom and called the members together at, the, at New Mount Carmel. Mm. Mm, yes. Can you imagine when it's about to happen? Uh, I have a feeling. So about 900 people gathered. Um, and when the signs did not appear, the Davidians were like, yo, be out of here. So at this gathering was Benjamin Roden, a former Seventh-day Adventist um, who had accepted Victor's teachings way back in 1946. And he up and announced he was the sign that the Davidians were looking for. I mean, he was just an opportunist. Oh, for sure. He was like, wait a minute. No, no, nobody's going to show up. Yeah, like nobody's going to be yo, yo, here. Oh, yo, it's me. Yeah. In the back. In the back. It's check, me. check me out. So Florence's failure at a prophecy um, discredited Florence. So a small group was like, okay, cool. You say you're the prophet? Now lead us. And Ben's branch Davidians took over New Mount Carmel, which had shrunk, had now shrunk to only about 77 acres. They kicked out Florence and her leaders, and they're like, we're it. We're doing this now. Okay, so they kicked out Florence. Mm-hmm, because, you know, she obviously wasn't the real prophet. She couldn't predict the establishment of God's kingdom. Right. And here was good old Ben, who was like, me. It was me. It huh? was me uh-huh. the whole time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Third row from the back. Yep. Sixth person in. And, you know. Opportunist. Yes. Yeah. So, and some of these folks were like, she couldn't produce nothing so cool. Cool, Ben. We're going to follow you now. Right. Yeah. And so he. And led, how'd that go? Well, he actually um, led the group from 1959 until he died in 1978. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, then his wife, Lois, took over. Now, Lois's teachings were a little bit different. They centered on the female nature of the Holy Spirit and co-domination of women and men in the church. You know, 78, feminism. Yeah. Yeah, going with like, the trend. Mm-hmm. So while um, George Roden, Lois's son, claimed to be the heir apparent to the Branch Davidians, he was not respected throughout the community, and Lois did not support his claim. Lois, who was in her late 60s at the time, had hitched her wagon to Vernon Howell. Okay. So, remember Vernon had moved to Waco? Yeah, he moved to Waco because, you know, well, first of all, I guess the Adventists, the Seventh-day Adventists weren't enough for him. So, then he found... Well, the, they kicked him out. They Yes. They kicked him out. He moved to Waco and joined the Branch Davidians in 81. Got it. So, this is when these two stories combined. Combined. Like, literally is, like, the, so many things have to go right for these, for these random acts to occur. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. Yes. So, Lois in her 60s hitched her wagon to Vernon Howell, who was in his 20s, and was having an affair with him. Oh, Um, yeah, girl, get some of that. 
But in 1984, Vernon married a teenage Branch Davidian, Rachel Jones, and the couple had three children together. Um, now, Vernon did briefly leave New Mount Carroll, but he returned in the mid-80s, and um, Vernon gained support and had a following of Branch Davidians. So, um, but even despite this, George was able to gain control of Mount Carmel in 1985, and he forced Vernon and his group of followers to leave at gunpoint. You know, Christian. Yeah. Um, so Vernon and his new fo- and his followers resettled in Palestine, Texas. But two years later, on November 3rd, 1987, they returned. And eight men, including Vernon, exchanged gunfire with George before being arrested. They were going to try to come and take, take over. Taking it back, oh, as this Texans like to say. Not they the were, Alamo guys. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Taking it back. I guess. They were arrested. Vernon and his followers were all acquitted after they were arrested um, for the shootout. They were acquit- acquitted, and Vernon's trial was declared a mistrial. So his followers were acquitted. Vernon's case was declared a mistrial. Don't know how that happened. But George, Lois's son, owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on Mount Carmel. So Vernon and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property. Uh Uh-huh. That worked out. I mean, pay your taxes, people. It's it's, seriously. That's how you all get caught. I'm just just saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Pay your taxes. Yeah, no, definitely. So, Vernon is the one who created many of the distinctive culty vibes of the Branch Davidians, such as an authoritative leader, communal life, separate from society, and the anticipation of the intimate end of the world. In 1990, do you know what happened? Hmm. Do you? Huh? You want to know? Huh. Vernon Wayne Howell changed his name to David Koresh. Okay, I knew it. I knew it. I was like, I have a feeling I know where she's going, but I didn't want to jump. That's right. David fucking Koresh. Waco. We're talking about Waco. David motherfucking Koresh. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to fight some people. I'm let, ready. Let me tell you something really funny now. Now that we've established this is David Koresh. Yeah. I want to tell you something. I really thought they were called the Branch Davidians because his name was David Koresh and he just wanted them to be the Davidians. What do you mean? Like David Davidians. Oh, got it. So like the David dash Idians, David. Like he come Davidians. He, he got named it, got them it. after himself. Oh, yeah. No, I could see that. I could see. I mean, shit. I'm stupid. That makes y'all. more sense than how they actually <laughs> came I'm into being. I'm stupid, so. y'all. And, that's and, stupid. That's, and yeah. the name Davidians comes from somewhere in the Bible. I didn't want to get into all that. I don't know. Don't ask me. This is this is like this stuff where there's like extra books in the Bible that the Catholic Bible has that every other Bible doesn't have. Or I'm like, okay. Yeah. No. No idea. So. Let us know if you know. That's how stupid I am. So it actually was kind of interesting doing that background research yeah. on how they became the Branch Davidians from the Davidians from the Seventh Adventist Church. Right. They split off. They split off. So here we are. And then now today. So he did this to signify his Masonic role in carrying out 
a divinely commissioned take on defending the enemies of God. David's teachings included spiritual weddings so he could have sex with God-chosen females of all ages. David fathered at least a dozen children with women other than his legal wife, who I'm not quite sure was legal because she was a teenager at the time, but that's my opinion. Of course. Um, This was because God told him to procreate with the women in the group to establish a house of David. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So the other leaders of the Davidians had all been pacifists. Um, Ben Rodden, Lois, Florence, the one before it. (laughs) I can't remember his name. Yeah, no. Victor, all of them had all been pacifists. David began stockpiling weapons and ammunition to defend the faithful. Yes. He claimed God instructed him to build an army of God to prepare for the end of days. Mm-hmm. Um, David never actually said the words, I'm Jesus, but he said he was the final prophet. So we can infer that he was saying, basically, I'm the guy. Yeah. So, um, David is so fucking stupid. He used mail order for his grenade making supplies. Yeah, that's because, um, you know, why not? There was like mail order catalogs like, um, what's that one? Well, there's Sears for one was a big mail order. But I'm okay. So service merchandise. No, no, no. Um, hold on. Hold on. My MS brain is kicking in everyone. Uh, it was a magazine you could order things in the Soldier of Fortune. Soldier of Fortune. Yes. You could order things from the back of Soldier of Fortune. Yep. In my head, he's got his he has um a ripped t-shirt wrapped around his head <laughs> as a bandana, maybe a little bit of camo paint on his face, reading the Soldier of Fortune and his t-shirt with the rolled up sleeves and his um army fatigue pants. And he's reading the back and he, he's looking through the back. So he can order his grenade-making supplies by mail. He's got a real Rambo vibe in your vision. But not Rambo. But not Rambo, no. Because he's skinny with glasses. Yes. So in 82, the local mailman was delivering the mail, minding his own business, when he discovered firearms, inner grenade casings, and black powder in a broken package. And for once... In one of our stories, if you see something, you said something. Yeah. Finally. And it was 92. That's a a big deal for them to say anything. Mr. Mailman, you win. You win the prize. You win all the prizes. So he contacted the authorities. Yay, local mailman. So in May, Chief Deputy Daniel Weinenberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department contacted the ATF because... McLennan County um, can't handle this on their own. That's agreed, especially if we're going to have like a, a large amount of guns and things. You need to make sure you have enough people and experience to know what yeah. the hell and to do. Grenade making supplies. Yeah. I'm going to go local county sheriff's departments, even big ones like Travis County, Williamson mm-hmm. County. They should probably turn that over. Right. Because um, that's like. Somebody that probably's got a lot of things. Um, 
<laughs> so the authorities started a formal investigation in June of 92. So the ATF began surveillance of the house in, from the house across the street. David was also being accused of sexual abuse, physical abuse of the children, and had committed statutory rape by taking several underage women as brides. That, yeah, that's pretty gnar and gross. And I mean, I'm not surprised. Is anyone else surprised? No, especially if you already had a teenage wife, then it stands yeah. to reason. Yeah, he had a teenage wife with three children. Y'all, come yeah. on now. Yeah, not good. So, February 28th, 1993, the U.S. Bureau of Tab- Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided the compound and began a 51-day siege. Now, let me tell you about this shit show. Yeah. February 28th to April 19th, 1993. The raid was codenamed Showtime and was originally planned to take place on March 1st. Um... I'm going to codename this shit show. Agreed. Because that's what it was. Yeah. So it was supposed to start on March the 1st and was changed because of a motherfucking reporter. Now, I gave props to reporter a reporter um, with Jason Van Dyck, but not this motherfucker who published a series on David in the Waco Tribune Herald, even though the ATF tried to stop them. Oh, like say, hey, wait until we get over there before you report anything. So, yes, reporters, there's a time when you should not scoop the police. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes you should. Jason Van Dyke? Scoop. Scoop. A plus. Thousand gold stars. But if it's going to like. Fucking dickhead at the Waco Tribune Herald who was trying to make a name for themselves and get on Good Morning America. Don't scoop the ATF on a raid. Right. It Like, especially if you're going to put a lot of people in danger. Like, you kind of have to weigh ethics versus, like, your job at that point and go, okay, the better thing for me to do is to wait. I still have the information. I'm still going to publish it, but I'm going to wait until they do yeah, this Yes, thing. you can still be the first one to publish it. Absolutely. Have your story written up. Hold your finger over the send button. <laughs> exactly. And don't hit send until after they breach. Right. Sit across the street in your car. Oh, so, there was no Wi-Fi. They had oh. to... Move up the date of the raid to February uh-huh, because uh-huh, of that, uh-huh, uh-huh. which means that they had a lot of people who were wildly unprepared for what was about to happen. My guess. Let me tell you how they lost the element of surprise. This is a fucking cartoon. The fucking reporter asked the mailman for fucking directions on how to get to the club. The mailman was David's fucking brother-in-law. Okay. That's a fucking cartoon. That's a shit show in itself. So that's how they knew is because the reporter was asking for directions and the guy just so happened to be the brother of David Koresh. A brother-in-law, yes. Brother-in-law. Nice. Yes. Nice. So the ATF and all their geniusness decides we're going to continue with this raid even though they know we're coming. Oh, God. I mean... That's a bad idea. Operation Chit Show commence. Instead of raiding the fucking compound, those motherfuckers, you know what? They should have got helicopters and the tanks and the stuff and the stuff and all converged on the fucking reporter. <laughs> Arrest that guy. <laughs> Just him. Yes. And then plan the raid for a different day. Seriously. 
give it six months. Yeah, yeah. let it, let everything cool out and then yeah. go back and leave one guy. Leave leave um Gary. Yeah, leave a Gary. An it nondescript person. Agreed. So That's what happens? Sad. Like so I want to ask you this question because uh-huh. how far in depth do you go about the shit show that that the government turned it into? I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, let's get into it. I'm curious. So 9.45 a.m., a gun battle began between the ATF and the branch Davidians. Um, the ATF says the Davidians fired first, and the Davidians say the a- ATF fired first. So really, I don't think we will ever know unless that one person says... A- ATF fired first. I did it. ATF fired first. <laughs> I mean... I'm just going to they did, dude. They fucking. OK, keep going. Keep going. I, I mean, I have feelings for about what is about to happen next. So. So at 1110 a.m., a ceasefire was announced. And in those two hours, four ATF agents had been killed. Another 16 were wounded with five Davidians killed. And later that day, a six was killed by the ATF. Later that evening, four children were allowed to leave by David. Who had been wounded? Four children who were allowed to leave, and David, who had been wounded, was interviewed by CNN and spoke to KRLD in Dallas. Mm-hmm. So, over the next 49 days, um, the FBI hostage rescue team tried to negotiate a peaceful end to the siege. Um, the first couple of days, it seemed like there was a breakthrough when David agreed to let the Davidians leave the compound in return for a recorded message from David. To be broadcast on national radio. But then David told the investigators that God told him to remain in the building and wait. Mm -hmm. Despite God's message, 19 children were released. Which is good. That's a good thing that they did. Can't we please stop saying God tells us to do things? Well, not in this case, because you're covering a cult, so you just have to go through it. It's me. It's I know. Painful. Okay. So, um, time went on, and the FBI used increasingly aggressive techniques, such as sleep deprivation, by using all-night broadcasts and recording of loud noises and pop music to try to force the brain Davidians out. And let me just explain what they used uh, as well. The sound of rabbits being murdered, which I don't know if you've heard that noise, for hours and hours and hours. It's like this high-pitched, screeching, awful noise that no one should have to listen to. So they did that. I, I don't hate that. What? I mean, I know what happens, so if they had just left, they would have stopped. Well, the reason why they didn't is because they literally just got shot at, like, by everybody outside the compound. And to your point, they're also thinking, okay, maybe if we can negotiate, and we can leave on our own terms. Because from what I understand as well from the raid, the Davidians that they did kill, they just left outside the compound to rot all, all these days as also part of a way to get them out. And so you literally had people like there was this one guy who was hanging over a fence. His body was just there for days. You mean they are crazy? They are crazy, but I believe the government over fucking reacted. They napalmed children. They killed women and children in this raid. Women and children. They literally burned the fucking thing to the ground with women and children inside. 
So a little bit of an overreaction. There's one way to raid a place and like get the people out like this. I agree. They were starting to become dangerous and all that shit. But there's another way to do it. Like this was a way, way too much. And everyone's just like, well, that's what they get. It's like, yo, they're just mowing down people. Literally, like, brrr, like mowing them down. It's crazy. They did have guns, but they also sold some of those guns as a it, legally, because in Texas, there was all these, I don't know exactly the laws back then. They've changed so much, but they could legally sell guns to get money for their church and shit. I agree. I don't believe in the at all him having, you know, basically raping children and calling them wives and all this other shit. That's awful. So yeah, something should have been done, but not the way that they did it. I just, I think it's disgusting that. So Jesse yeah. just finished my story for me. So <laughs> I don't have to tell you anything else. I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean Would to Would you like you. to tell your trophy dad now? No. <laughs> that's all I was saying. I was saying like, I'm sorry. You continue. I don't have to. You finished for me. So that's all I have. Are you serious? Are you, are you, did I really jump your entire story? Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. But you didn't say what happened to David Koresh or anybody else. You want to tell that part, too? No, 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 no. Go, go. <laughs> I'm sorry. So David forced out a group of 11 followers to leave that were arrested as material witnesses. Um, one person was charged with conspiracy to murder. And April 19th, U.S. Attorney General at the time, Janet Reno, um, approved recommendations by the FBI to mount an assault. Explosives were used to puncture holes in the walls of the main compound. Um, so tear gas could be pumped in in hopes of flushing out the Davidians without harming them. Around noon, three fires broke out in different parts of the building, and it spread quickly. So, um, the government says the fires were intentionally started by the Davidians, but others, including some Davidian survivors, believe the fires were started, whether accidentally or deliberately, by the FBI. Nine people left the building um, during the fires. The remaining 96 Davidians, including children, were killed either by rubble, suffocation from the effects of the fire, or shots. Extensive investigations took place following the siege and changed the way federal officials conducted future operations um, like this. Four months after the fire, a federal grand jury indicted 12 of the surviving Davidians for aiding and abetting the murder of federal officers along with the unlawful possessions of firearms. Four members were acquitted. The remaining eight were convicted, but only on the firearms charges. By 2007, all the members have been released from prison. And um, nothing remains of the original compound. There are still Davidians and Branch Davidians scattered around the U.S. and the world. And a small group of Branch Davidians still live and worship at Mount Carmel called the branch. The Lord are righteous. This group claims that David twisted the biblical teachings, but other branch Davidians, some still at Mount Carmel, still align themselves with David and his versions of the branch Davidian faith. So they're still around. 
Yes. So, and David Koresh died in the, the fire bombing, essentially. So here's what I understand. First of all, I'm sorry for jumping your story. I apologize. I don't think you are. I am. I really am. I feel awful. Um, I understand the fires. What happened was they used petroleum tanks to heat and cool. Well, to heat the, the place, you know, like those little petroleum heaters you can get. And from what I understand, when they threw the tear gas in the place, that tear gas itself is extremely flammable. Add that to a room full of gas, essentially, and then boom, accidental firebombing, which obviously not ideal and nor anyone's intention. But that's what I understand happened with that. But who knows? Again, I wasn't in the fucking compound in 1992 or whatever. So um, also when I say house, it was like um, not built very well. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was like kind of ramshackle. It was like a big shack kind of. Because it was, it, it had multiple buildings. I remember that. And it had multiple, like, it was pretty big. But, like. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, she's pulling up photos now. I'm trying to find before. So they did actually change their policies after this raid. Yes, Thank they God. did. Yes, they did. Because I was like, you can't just do this to to people. You know, like, it's okay. Obviously, we need police and obviously we need this kind of you know people to step in every once in a while go nope we're not doing this right but yes and i think (laughs) as with any situation like this you never know what truly happens yeah exactly and um so you don't really know and i can see because this Inside, I saw inside pictures somewhere. Um, because of the way that this was constructed, and I don't believe there was electricity. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. And so the way they had to um, eat and have electricity. I can see it just being um, like a tinderbox almost. Yeah. And so when they did throw tear gas in there, it just. Right. It just imploded. It exploded, essentially. Yeah. And not it. um, It being on purpose. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or I can see David Crush being crazy and starting a fire. That can happen, too. Or, you know, a fire being started at the same time the smoke bomb was thrown and causing an explosion. Right. So, I mean, ABC News had no running water, heat, or electricity. Yeah. Yeah. You know? They were living rough, for sure. Or... The ATF fired first and the Branch Davidians did fire back. But what they fired back with was a firearm so powerful that the ATF was like, what do they have in there? And freak the fuck out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you fire back with a high-powered rifle, maybe it's just one rifle that went off. But you know these people have illegal firearms. And now you're like, how many of these do they have? Right. And how do we get people out of here? 
And if they have those bullets that can pierce bulletproof vests, mm-hmm. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, you know, nobody's going to ever know what really happened. No. But and things did change afterwards. Absolutely. And Policies they, did change. And also, like, when did Jonestown happen? How many years before this? Couple? Like, that was in the late 70s, early 80s, I want to say. Something like that. Because I think that that was in the back of, you know, Janet Reno and everybody else's head was, holy shit, we can't have a Jonestown here in the in the United States. Jonestown was 78. 78. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, they had that already as a frame of reference. And they're like, holy fuck. We know absolutely not. So I can see why it was like, okay, DEFCOM won. Let's get everybody there. Let's do this thing. It was just And everybody is now on edge because they know that they were tipped off. Right. And you don't know how they're going to react. So now everybody knows it's coming. I mean, I think this, when I say it should have been renamed from Showtime to Shit Show, it's because it was a perfect storm of everything is going wrong. Yes. You know? Yeah. Unlike Steve Irwin, where... Him and his wife met. It was this perfect little, like, good moment. This was like, hey, let's find out everything that could possibly fucking go wrong. And it it was almost like, we're going to pull everything we can out of this big hat of tricks. Yeah. Because we do know there's kids in there. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm going to ask you really a question. Why did you do Waco when you hate? You hate religions and the Duggars. Why did you want to do the Duggars? Like, when you hate this shit, like, it drives you crazy. I'm obsessed with the Duggars because I don't understand them and their whole, we're just going to pop babies out like we're rabbits because we don't understand that it's nature. Ah. Okay. I don't get it. I, I admire and, you for taking on Waco, though, because this one's a fucking... Well, and I also thought it would be longer, but it's really kind of just straight to the point. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like he did this thing, he was this person, and then it kind of ended very quickly. Yeah. 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 It, I thought it was going to be longer, and I was trying to find people to do, and I was like, oh, this was right up the road. It's so weird, like... So, okay, so the, the girls that we saw as children in the grocery store with the long hair and, like, the long jean dresses or jean skirts and long, like, everything's covered. Are those Davidians? I have never seen those people. They could have just been, um... Because I used to live, and I'll say it, San Angelo, Texas, West Texas. And when I was younger, there were a lot of those people in the grocery stores. I think those were, um... Oh, maybe they were like the what's his Warren Jeffs guy. Yeah. What yeah. are those called? Um God. They were Mormon. Latter day Saints. Latter day Saints. Okay, so like yeah, the Mormon offshoot. His compound was out there. That's right. But I don't think his compound was that long ago. No, it wasn't. He I mean, he just got went into jail, thank God. But from what I understand, he's running things from jail. So is that better? <laughs> it's the same shit? No. I know. Which brings us back to jail talk. I still need to try to find that. Did y'all know that was a thing, guys? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're obsessed with TikTok, and Amanda just found Jail Talk. I didn't. I haven't found Jail Talk. Oh. I found out Jail Talk exists. Oh, okay, there you go. 
from Mario on TikTok. I love that, though. That's so fucking sick, dude. Can we, now that we've brought up TikTok, can we um, discuss her? Who? My um, TikTok soulmate. Oh, yes. Go for it. Y'all. I have found her. <laughs> She's found the one. Have you told Pod Hubby yet? Yes. Oh, so he knows that you're leaving him for another woman. I'm not leaving him for another woman just because that's not my jam. I love it's your jam. It's just not mine. I support you. Um, but. Am I being replaced because I jumped your story? With her. <laughs> so. Be a new, new host next time, everybody. I have to find her because. Y'all have to hear this. You sent me some messages, so she should be in there. Yeah, that's where I'm going to. But do you know how many messages we send each other? That's true. So it would almost be easier for me to go to my Tiki Talkies, <laughs> go to my people I follow, and then find her from there. You have got to get on Prison Talk and like just sc- start scrolling around for me because I need to know what's going on I don't on know how to find these different types of talks that exist. There's no I me. <laughs> and you can see why we love her. Well, especially why you love her. <laughs> I love her. What's her TikTok handle? Don't forget that. Um, oh, it's... It is um, underscore lawless. L-A-W-L-E-S-S. That's you, for sure. But let me play the one that first one I sent you. That I sent her this, and then I said, why do I feel like this is... Why do I feel this in my soul? <laughs> Friends aren't really your friends. They're just afraid to be your enemy. <laughs> She's me. So you're going to have to do some homework and report back after you've been on prison talk for a while and let me know what it's like. I don't know. Because I feel like it's just be prisoners who actually have access to a celly. A self, like a cell phone, not a celly. Yeah. So... What do I do? Do I just search for that hashtag? Yeah, you just do hashtag prison talk. Do, are they it'll hashtagging come up. it prison talk? Because yeah. I think that would be an easy way to find the prisoners that have the cell phones. Well, yeah, I'm sure. Yes. It's just like uh, teachers, teacher talk, all that stuff. But no, I'm saying now if I am a guard, oh. I'm going to go hashtag prison, prison talk. talk. Yeah. Oh, look. There's Steve. I'm gonna go search Steve's cell now well, and confiscate his phone. I feel like I feel like it'd be the it would make the most sense. At least the prisoners that are smart, if they're using their brains, would would be the ones that have access to a phone already. See, what I'm saying like not ones so that they're like I, I keistered this and then now I'm on TikTok. So they would be smart enough not to hashtag it prison. Not talk. That, that's possible, or it could be from it could be from the guards' point of view too. It could be a prison guard going, okay, come with me on my first day of work or whatever the hell. I don't know. No, no, no. Mario said it's the prisoners. That's what I'm saying. I need to know more. God damn it. <laughs> God damn you it. You can't throw this out there without more information. God dang it. I, I, you know, oh, some of your oh, friends. Oh, 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 sorry. I was going to try to find this prison talk for her and then my soulmate came up. That's okay. You don't have to do this now. Silly. Well, I do. You're yelling at me. Oh. 
Do you want to hear about my my trophy person today? Yes. Okay. My trophy mom, her star mom. I'm going off script, bitch. I'm going off script again. You said it's it's a contribution, so I figured, you know what? Uh, who's a bigger cunt thing than Gary Ridgeway? Nobody. Nobody's a bigger cunt. Told you. I told you. She just searched it and she found all these different hashtags. She's losing her mind. Prison wife talk. Oh, there you go. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Prison wife. Y'all, the conservation is over. I have things to do. This is her whole rest of her day now. My life. Job. (laughs) This is my notice. (laughs) She's now stuck on prison talk forever. Uh, uh. So I did a star mom. And her name is Marsha Faye Chapman. Why do I know that name? Because I literally just talked about her as a victim of Gary Ridgway. And the reason I'm telling her story is because she's a real fucking person and she needs her story to be told. And she's one of 49 up to potentially 80, 80 victims that Gary Ridgway had. So let's get into who she was as a person. Marsha Faye which I, I just spelled her name. She did everything she could for her children. Um, and just so you know, I looked in to see if any of her children had talked about her online. I couldn't find anything. But again, that's probably for the best. I guess she doesn't want people to know who she is. Yeah, the, the kids, her children, absolutely not. I would, I, this would be one of those instances where a not, anonymity would be ideal. Marsha was born July 9th, 1951 in Arizona to Ross Grover and Teresa Stillman Chapman. It's unclear how or why she ended up in Seattle during the 80s, lost to time. Like I, I looked out there to see if there's any more back history, but she was she was a normal person. So, the, you know, I don't have my history on Wiki. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't know. <laughs> if you find me on the Internet, can you like message me and tell me all, me, all about myself. Yeah, that actually. Yeah. Are you going to Google? Have you Googled yourself? No. You should Google yourself. It's pretty funny. Right now? Well, I guess you, you didn't have MySpace, so your MySpace photos don't come up like mine do. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, thank God. Thank God for that. No, thank God I grew up before social media and the Internet and my shit is not out there. Think about that, girl. When we were drinking, like when we were fucking partying and shit, could you imagine? There is a Lord in heaven. There is. You just converted me. I told you. Now you believe in Jesus. Exactly right. <laughs> Baptize me in the water. <laughs> so We're going to the bathroom right now. <laughs> so um, Marsha was also known as Belinda Bradford, Marcy Woods, Marsha Bradford, and Belinda Jean Chapman to police and on the streets because she had turned to sex work to provide for her three children. Marsha was a small woman. She was about 100 pounds and 5'2", and went by the nickname Tiny. She lived with her children at the Strip Puerto Villa Apartments, an area of Pacific Highway South near the airport in extreme South Seattle, no longer Seattle, known for the scene. So red light district, essentially, is where she lived. Most of the Grim River Killer victims were last seen in and around this area. According to Reddit user u slash quirky dash motor, which, yeah, I'm referencing a Reddit user. And here's why. Because they fucking did the work, my friend. I am linking this Reddit thread. This person 
went through the entire history of the case and everybody it, it's like a, a thesis paper basically so well done um she had children aged 11 9 and 3 when she died and she needed all the money she could get and sex work allowed her to provide for them i don't know about her significant others i don't give a shit that's not the point the point is she was a single mom raising three children on her own and i bet she maybe went on to do better things. Yeah. So the, her death certificate listed her occupation as switchboard operator, which, yeah, that'd be see, my guess. See, it's just like Maya Angelou. You can't judge somebody for their past. Mm-hmm. And so I have a feeling, I'm a, this is me assuming that either she did this during the day and then at night did sex work. Yeah, to supplement her income exactly mm-hmm. yeah exactly um she used her money and again this doesn't fucking matter what she used her money on for food rent clothing and other basic needs for her kids one of her neighbors remembers her saying about why she didn't work for a pimp quote why would i give my money to a man i need it for my kids not for some man I'm like fuck yeah independent exactly She's like, I'm not going to give my, my cut of my hard-earned money to some dude. Absolutely not. So, and according to an actual thesis, I actually read two things. There's actually a thesis about the killings by um, this person who was doing their college-level thesis on, on Gary Bridgeway, which I thought was cool that I read. And then I also got the prosecutor's final report on Gary Ridgeway, the entire history of him, the in, all about the victims and killers. It, it's incredible. Yes, I'm going to link it all if you guys want to go deep dive into it. It's absolutely fascinating. Especially because you can kind of see how the criminal justice system works and how they refer to things. It's just like, it's really interesting. So... Um, according to insiders, insiders into the sex work lifestyle, she would work near K Street between 15th and 11th Street in Tacoma, Washington. And she was even arrested for soliciting sex on June 28, 1982. She pleaded not guilty under the name Belinda J. Bradford. And before her court date, during the middle of July, she was raped and pistol whipped in her apartment by an unknown assailant and ended up in the hospital. It's unclear if this was Gary or somebody else because, you know, it's a can be a very dangerous line of work but i thought that was fascinating i don't think that was gary i don't think so either i think it may have just been a pissed off you know john who's being an asshole or it could have been a pimp who she wouldn't um work for yeah that's true especially because like the pistol whip part makes me feel like yeah "Mm." i feel like if it was gary he would have just killed her then right done his business and killed her Yeah. yeah on august 1st 1982 nine days after she appeared in court and I was, it's unclear. I couldn't find out if she was actually charged and let out with like probation or a fee or so. I, I couldn't find that out. She had her, left her kids at home and told them that she was going to the store. Her last known sighting was around 30th Avenue South and South 188th Street. When she didn't, 188th Street. When she'd come back from the store, her 11-year-old called their grandma to see if she could come over to take care of them until their mom came back home. This might have been a common occurrence when she went out late nights, you know, because her her mom actually, Teresa, lived near them in West Seattle, about 33 miles away, about an hour. But 
from what I understand, Marsha would go out at five and come home later that evening after she was done. So, and the neighbors would help take care of the kids that she trusted. Right. The kids were never left on their own. That was one thing the neighbors always said. So Grandma Teresa started to get really worried when Marsha didn't show up at all the next day and called the cops immediately to report her missing, saying, quote, never has she done anything like this. Good mother. After two weeks, she was found on August 12th, 1982, along with two other victims, Opal and Cookie. Medical examiner confirmed that she was dumped one week before she was found in the Green River, and she was one of Gary's first victims before he changed his dumping locations because everyone knew he was dumping along the Green River because of the fucking reporters. So he's like, oh, okay, cool. I just got to find a different place to dump these people. And that's what he did. I mean, reporters. Yeah, there's there's got to be a limit. I mean, like, I'm all for getting the shit out there, but... It, I mean, they did good things. They did. We need to know about this, but... Sometimes you gotta <laughs> hold things back. Right. Marsha was only 31 years old when she died, and her mom, Teresa, had to visually identify her. Oh, no. I think that's always the worst. I cannot I mean, even I think, imagine. I think that has to happen whenever anybody dies, right? I don't know, because, like, I, I often wonder, like, how often is a visual examination needed or, or like, can you, can we just do it now with DNA? You know what I mean? Like, so let's say, do you have to do it? Let's say I had a heart attack and died at work. Right. Everybody at work knows that's me. They call the police. I go to the hospital. I just killed over and died. Right. Yeah. Call the police or call 911. I go, I die, the police comes. Like, everybody at work says, that's Amanda. Does my husband then have to come and say, no, that's my wife? No, I I think it's more for people like this. Like, okay, she was also working and missing. And her coworkers, you know, the ladies on the street, they're not going to go to the cops to say she's missing because they also don't know her situation you know they right. don't know oh maybe she just moved to a different area yeah, and working in a different area know, they, she could have like we're not welcome there for some reason and had to move to a different right so what her mom did so my guess is again purely speculation that you have to visually identify if either the victim is missing missing or i don't know they don't know who it is exactly and they want to confirm is this your daughter but then, like I said, can't you just use DNA now? I mean, I know back but then they couldn't. Maybe but even if they use DNA, they just want like, yeah, and then closure. A lot of people want to see to know. Okay. Or even the cops just want to make sure. You know what? Yeah, I mean? yeah, I gotcha, gotcha. Like, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. I- <laughs> That's great. Oh, my God. This is the gold you come for, my friend. It took a while, but we mined it. We got there. We got there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wanted to say, but this all this shit is not who Marsha was. Gary's victim, Marsha, was a good mother who provided for her children as best she could. She was friendly and cheerful and talked to her neighbors. 
Like I said, they watched her kids for her while she was out because they knew what she did for a living. And they're like, absolutely. We're, we we wish you didn't have to do this, but we'll, of course, we'll be there for you. You know what would have happened if it was, you know, nowadays? They would have done a GoFundMe for her so she wouldn't have had to do that. Exactly. Exactly. Her neighbors mentioned to the cops that Marsha was responsible and would always come home to her kids and never left them unsupervised. Her mom, Teresa, was less excited about her sex work. I mean, and when Marsha would call her to watch the kids, she would rarely answer. I mean, and I get that as a mother. That's not exactly what you want your daughter to necessarily do. So it must have been really important. Teresa must have known it was important whatever her 11-year-old granddaughter's calling her, going, you need to come take care of us. Because mom's gone. Yes. That's not good. She had to know that she wasn't out working. Yeah, because if if she said, I'm going to the store and leaving them unattended, that she never does. Right. She must have been going to the store. Like, literally. She was probably going to the wagon bag. Right. Like, I'm going to be right up the road. I'll be right back. God dang it. So Marsha's friend Lori, a waitress, said, quote, she was always really happy, really cheerful. She was uplifting. She was really carefree. But she reminded me of a lady who could really take care of herself in a bad situation. She was a little roughy. And that is the unfortunate, sad story of Marsha Faye Chapman. But I do want to leave it on. She was a real person, just like every other person that he murdered. And she was a, a good mother. And can't really judge people based on what they do for a living or don't do, especially in cases like this, because you don't know the circumstances that people are going through. No, sex work isn't a person's first choice normally. So well, probably I mean, going through some shit. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And you know what? Fair. Good for you. Exactly. You get it. Yep. I mean, some people, I mean, sex work doesn't always have to be prostitute. No. No. I mean, there's some people making ten, twenty thousand dollars a night to be an escort. So, really, we're gonna you're gonna sit there and judge. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you do you, boo. Exactly. <laughs> you get that Louis Vuitton, however you you want to get it. Um, I mean, send me some extra LV, like <laughs> the LV that you're ready, like you don't want to use anymore, or that's out of season, or five seasons ago. PO box four seven two. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. You do you. I don't care. I am like, I'm judging McJudster, but like shit like that. Mm, I don't care. Let, let people live their life. I'm going to judge you because you're fucking stupid. Yeah, you're doing, or you're being mean. Being an asshole. Yeah. Agreed. So that's our first of two episodes for the Contemplation. We're going to eat cake now, and then we're going to bring you Contemplation Part 2. Part 2. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday.